0: Digging deeper into the day's top stories,
1: you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for being with me here on this Thursday, July the 9th. Coming up on today's show, I'll be joined by BC's Minister of Health, Adrian Dix. We're going to talk about COVID-19 in the province. Yesterday, we reached 3,000 total cases in British Columbia of the novel coronavirus since the pandemic began. A bit of a grim milestone, if you will. I'll catch up with Minister Dix in the back half of the program to talk about that data. But to begin today's show, well, a new study by veterinary scientist David Hughes finds that the industry and government narrative that BC liquefied natural gas will contribute to a global emissions reduction by displacing cold-fired electricity in Asia is not accurate. And in fact, the reverse might actually be true. How did he come to that conclusion? Well, I'm joined on the line now by the author of a new report published by the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, BC Office. Here is David Hughes. David, thanks so much for taking the time today. Uh, My pleasure. So, David, in your analysis, you know, it shows that you've determined that liquid natural gas exports would make global warming worse over the next 30 years when compared to the best technology, coal-fired plants coming online in Asia. Just sort of how did you come to that conclusion? I mean, we always talk about how, you know, dirty coal, we need to get away from it, but you're saying that liquid natural gas is maybe not an appropriate replacement.
2: Well, yeah, if if you look at just burner tip emissions, you know, just how much emissions per unit of heat, uh, gas is about half of of coal. But if you're producing gas, uh, there's a lot of emissions that come from drilling the wells, from transporting the gas in pipelines, and those emissions are both CO2 and methane. And methane is a very potent gas. Over 20 years it's 86 times as potent as CO2. And over 100 years it's 34 times as potent. So what I did, first of all, I took the latest production forecast for BC from the Canada Energy Regulator. And I took the latest emissions data, which is provided by Environment Canada in our submission to the United Nations every year. And I calculated, you know, if you grow production that much, what would the upstream emissions look like? And if you look at uh, LNG Canada, for example, the upstream emissions to produce the gas are about nine megatons per year. And the emissions from the terminal that's being built in Kitimat are about four, so that's 13 altogether. You know, then you have to add to that the emissions to ship it by tanker to China and to regasify it once it gets there. And if the Chinese are going to build new uh, electricity capacity, they have a choice of either renewable energy, which China is quite big on, uh, best technology coal, which is much more efficient than older coal plants, or gas, uh, BCLNG. And that was, was what I based my comparison on, is BCLNG versus best technology coal in China. If you look at the fugitive methane that comes from, you know, drilling the wells and processing the gas and transporting it, it's about 3.3% of total production. That, and that number comes from studies done at Cornell on U.S. unconventional gas because all of this gas will be frack gas, mainly from the Montney formation in northeast B.C. And if you look at that and you consider the full cycle emissions from production, liquefaction, shipping, regasification. Over a 20-year period, best technology coal in China is about 18% better than BCLNG. And over 100 years, it's about 10% worse. And, you know, the number that's been quoted by politicians is, you know, I suspect some of it is just burner tip. They don't consider the full cycle emissions. And if they do, it's the 100-year number, so they don't They don't consider the much higher impact of methane over 20 years. So if it's 18% worse than best technology coal over 20, that means you have to wait probably 40 or 50 years before you start to get some climate improvement. And what that means is it's going to make the whole climate situation worse over the critical next few decades.
1: So, I mean, that actually kind of fits in well. I mean, you talked a little bit about in your report just uh, the ability for Canada to hit its emissions targets. And, you know, it, it's been kind of well reported that Canada is not on pace to get to, you know, its 2050 targets at all. Um, how is this going to impact that? Is this going to make it worse and, 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 you know, put Canada even in a worse spot when it comes to trying to meet its emissions targets?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I looked at, at several scenarios uh, One scenario used the Canada Energy Regulator projection for BC without any LNG. And if you project emissions out to 2050, just the oil and gas sector in BC will exceed the clean BC target, which is 80% below 2007 by 54%. Once you get to 2050, just the oil and gas sector without LNG, if you add in the production of gas for LNG Canada plus the terminal, you know, that's another nine megatons per year. And that means in 2050, BC's target will be exceeded by 160%, just from the oil and gas sector. So that assumes that every other sector of the economy is reduced to zero, you know, by that point. Um, So it's a complete non-starter. If we're serious about reaching our emissions reduction target, unfortunately.
1: Well, I guess in in that regard too. Um you know when people look at the positives, I guess they come out of it right? Maybe they try to avoid the negatives and, and not look at you know what it's going to do in terms of our ability to to reach climate goals um, but, but you know a lot of people would say that these pipelines are going to really help in terms of uh, creating jobs, but one of the things your report looked at as well is that it's not necessarily going to have as many jobs come with it as as right now people are potentially projecting
2: yeah the the narrative. Uh, out of industry and government is thousands of jobs but if you look at the reality most of those jobs are short term construction jobs so once the pipeline is built and the terminal is built uh, most of those jobs go away i just uh, looked at the lng canada website and they've actually reduced their estimate of permanent jobs from what i had in my report i had about 500 but now LNG Canada is saying only 300 to 450 permanent jobs. So, you know, that's what we'll end up with in the long run. So it's not an employment boom in, in the long run. Sure, over the uh, construction phase, it does create thousands of jobs but the permanent jobs are what we should be focused on.
1: hmm Yeah, no, and I agree with that. I mean, the, the construction's great, but it is only temporary, as you mentioned. Uh, will this have any benefit, though, maybe for, for taxpayers? Um, you know, just in a general sense, or are we going to see any benefit as Canadians to having this pipeline in our property?
2: Well, if you really, you know, add up the full cycle, I mean, the government gets revenue from corporate taxes, uh, from royalties paid for producing the gas, and from land sales. But, you know, I've used Statistics Canada data, and all of those have declined substantially since uh, 2005, and yet, since 2005, production of gas in B.C. has doubled. If you just look at royalties, uh, royalty payments to the government are down 84 percent in total since 2005, and production has doubled. So, you know, gas prices were higher back in 2005, and that's part of it. But in 2005, the government was getting a little over $2 per thousand cubic feet in in terms of royalties. And in 2018, it was getting 16 cents. And there's a lot of giveaways. There's deep well credits. LNG Canada is getting a, a break on the price of electricity, a very substantial break, which is costing us close to 60 million a year in credits. The tariffs on imported steel from China, have been eliminated. That's another 375 million that uh, we don't get. Uh, the federal government has put in another 275 million just for LNG-related infrastructure, you know, more efficient uh, gas burners and so forth, which is, is another giveaway. The other thing is that LNG Canada it won't have to pay any, for any increases in the carbon tax. And the provincial sales tax has been exempted over the construction period, it's been deferred. So if you add up all of the subsidies, and then you look at what's happening in terms of the trend of royalty payments, I, I would say the benefits to BC taxpayers are limited.
1: So, David, given that, you know, the the project itself is not going to help Canada hit its emissions targets, we're not going to see the number of permanent jobs that many were hoping for or expecting. It's not going to have a big impact on taxpayers or maybe even just a negative impact potentially on taxpayers. I mean, what, what are we... What is the... Uh, is there any positives to this project? What can you tell me in terms of, you know, is there any benefit to producing this liquid natural gas line here through B.C.?
2: Well, if you... You know, if you look at everything i looked at in my report you know all of the economics uh there there is no benefits uh, you know and there's a couple of other things that uh, i also looked at you know if you look at the canadian energy research institute calculations basically they is, suggest that it would cost eight dollars per million btus to get lng from kitimat to china if you look at all of the cost and the current spot price in China is about $2 a million BTU so if you need $8 and you're selling it for 2 you know that's probably even more uh reason that there won't be any corporate taxes paid for it and you know and a final thing is i think we're going to be using gas domestically for decades you know i i can't see Us completely replacing renewables, replacing Mm -hmm. fossil fuels with renewables like wind and solar. And natural gas is a pretty good backup for wind and solar because you can turn it on and off. And also for heating and so forth. So I think we're going to be using natural gas for the foreseeable future. However, if industry is is drilling off the B.C. Montany, they... You know, industry, you know, to their credit, they always try to maximize profits, so they drill the highest quality parts of these deposits first. So really, we're, you know, drilling off all of the best parts of our remaining finite natural gas resources and exporting them. And for domestic consumption, Canadians are going to have to go to more remote deposits, Uh, or lower quality deposits, which means higher costs. So, you know, not only are we we getting very few benefits out of this, we're likely to have higher costs in future because of it for our own gas. So I I can't really see any upsides. I'm sorry.
1: Well, uh, David, really appreciate you taking the time here. It's a pretty extensive report and we only scratched the surface really on it. Before I let you go, just anything else that you wanted to, to highlight?
2: I think we've We've hit most of the high points, but, you know, the uh, the sad thing is that nobody did the math up front. I mean, you know, you, I guess you can't completely blame LNG Canada because when they were considering the project, you know, back in 2015, 2014, gas prices were quite a bit higher and LNG prices in Asia were higher. But, you know, even before the pandemic hit, asian lng prices were about three to five dollars and we need at least eight to break even and you know the COVID pandemic you know has made that a lot worse maybe it will improve somewhat but i you know i highly doubt that it's going to be high enough for lng canada even break even when their first uh, phase comes on in 2025 so you know we'll see maybe uh government will reconsider based on my report i sure hope so
1: well, David, thank you so much for the time today and in highlighting some of these points. I think they're uh, important things for people to keep in mind when when examining things like these projects. So thanks so much for the time today. really appreciate it. Okay, well, thanks for the opportunity. That was Earth scientist David Hughes on his latest report, which is entitled, Why LNG Exports Doom Emissions Reduction Targets and Compromise Canada's Long-Term Energy Security. You can read that report on the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives website. Well... Got to take a quick break here, but when I come back, I'm set to be joined by BC's Minister of Health, Mr. Adrian Dick. So stick around, and the Jeff Andreas Show will be right back with some talk about COVID-19.
0: The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com.
1: Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for tuning in here on this Thursday. Now, British Columbia passed 3,000 cases of the novel coronavirus here just yesterday. A bit of a grim milestone when just looking at the sheer numbers. Let's bring in now BC's Minister of Health, Adrian Dix. Minister Dix, thanks as always for taking the time. Uh, great to be on with you. Hey, always appreciate having you. So uh, I'll just start by, you know, getting you to examine that number here for me. So we hit 3,000 cases of COVID-19 as as we go through the entire pandemic, just looking at how many cases have have been confirmed here in the province. I mean, um, you know, hitting 3,000 doesn't sound awesome, but it took us quite a while to get here. And I was, you know, initially, I guess, probably thinking we might get here a little bit quicker than we than we ended up doing. So I'll just get you to analyze the fact that we hit 3,000 and obviously disappointing to hit the number, but pretty happy with the way that the province has handled this and that it took as long as it did to get to this uh, 3,000 number.
0: Well, I think relative to other jurisdictions, and given the fact that we're so close to Washington State, where there's been a very, very significant outbreak, um, where they've done 3,000 in the past week, not since the beginning of the pandemic, um, new cases, uh, it's obviously a good result relative to that. But people have really suffered as, uh, as well, and we just have to all reflect on that right now. 186 people have died many of them uh, as we know in long-term care where people are especially vulnerable to covid 19 and uh, the disruption to the economic life of the province the disruption to other health procedures that i deal with has been significant so uh, i think uh, i think bc has a lot to be proud of the fact that people everybody uh, in communities from Kamloops to everywhere else, has responded so well. It's something we can be proud of. But we're still in the middle of this. Um, we had 18 new cases yesterday, which is um, a significant—you know—remains a significant number of cases. Uh, the majority of those cases are people living in Fraser Health, but they can. Uh, some of them are working in Vancouver Coastal Health, and so uh, uh, the the pandemic continues, and there's still no cure. And there's still no vaccine. So um, what we're doing now is pretty uh, intensely preparing for uh, for the fall and potentially the next stage of the pandemic.
1: So uh, I guess where or what, what sort of steps are you talking about when you're saying you're preparing for the fall and a potential second wave? Obviously, we're seeing continual increases to the stockpile of PPE. Uh, what other steps are ongoing right now to kind of prepare for that second wave if and when it does come?
0: Well, um, uh, PPE is obviously a key aspect of that of all our response, both in the in the system of care and then in the acute care system as well that we have in the province. I think uh, we need to um, continue to uh, recruit more staff and use those people who re-registered doctors and nurses on some existing health care programs. We have, for example, immunization programs uh, for, um, for diseases such as measles that we have, to, uh, we have to move on. We have to continue to move on over a period of time other health issues emerge. We have to prepare our hospital system. In the uh, in the spring, we, we talked and we saw 20 COVID-19 systems, centers, I should say, hospitals who became COVID-19 centers. And we probably, in the fall, we need to reflect on what the learnings are. And we probably want to have a smaller number of those so we can continue to pursue, even if we see some increase in COVID-19, continue to pursue Uh, surgical procedures and not have to shut them down in in their entirety. I think we have to prepare for influenza season because what's going to happen as we get into the fall is more people are going to have the symptoms of uh, of COVID-19, which are certainly initially very similar to the uh, symptoms of influenza or the symptoms of a cold. So there's going to be more of that. uh, And we're going to be dealing with COVID-19 potentially in those circumstances. So that means, I think... Uh, a much more vigorous influenza uh, vaccine campaign, uh, and uh, hopefully many, many more people uh, getting immunized so that we reduce uh, to the maximum extent possible influenza. And, and we have to take all of our learnings, our learnings in long-term care, our learnings in assisted living, our learnings around the province, our learnings in First Nations communities that have come from this stage, and we've got to be better. And uh, that means, you know, increasing our capacity to test and increasing our capacity to contact trace.
1: And, and just getting back to, to testing, you just brought it up there. Um, you know, when we look at a second wave and you look at, uh, you know, you were talking about how uh, when influenza season does come, there's a lot of crossover symptoms between COVID-19 and the, the flu. Um what is there a target that you would have in mind for how many tests you're hoping to be able to accommodate in a day? I believe right now BC is to be able to do somewhere in the neighborhood of 7,700 tests per day. Is that enough, or do you want to see that moved up even further?
0: Well, you know, I think we need to do the number of tests that's directed and dictated by public health and by how sick people are. Right, mm-hmm. but um, uh, 7,700 is our capacity right now. Yesterday, I believe we did 2,200 tests. Of which 18 were positive tests, which is under 1%. Um, uh, but we want to have the capacity, I think, um, to do upwards to 20,000 tests in a day, um, uh, and we have that capacity. That doesn't mean we're going to do 20,000 tests right. in a day, but we need to have the capacity to do that um, should things get significantly, uh, significantly worse. So part of the preparation is increasing your capacity to do which we've done consistently the capacity to do testing and also our capacity to do contact tracing because the key element now and the key is to find cases and then act on those cases and that is from february that ability to contact to trace and to test was a key element to reducing the initial um, upswing of COVID 19 in BC, and it really helped us. I mean, by the time they t- started taking actions like we did in Washington State, it, they already had um, widespread spread. And, you know, this is not to criticize anyone, that's just what happened. And so once there's widespread spread, uh, spread of, of COVID 19, um, you're really managing it at that point. You're not stopping it, you're managing it. Mm-hmm. And we've got to continue to try to the extent that we can and in the most humble way we can because this virus is making us all humble uh, every day uh, to try and keep control of it.
1: Uh, here with BC's Minister of Health, Adrian Dix. Adrian, I did want to ask just how you're feeling about the preparation that you've put in place so far to deal with a second wave, if and when it does come. Just talking about, you know, we have the stockpile of PPE, as you mentioned, looking to ramp up the ability to test uh, the single site plan that's been put in place for care homes and how that could potentially have a really positive impact if something does come along. I mean, you're just feeling a lot more confident that if, you know, we do see a a significant rise in cases for whatever reason uh, in the future, BC is in a really good place to handle it compared to where we were in march
0: i think we're in a better place to handle it and i think one of the strengths when this is one of the, one of the many reasons i admire dr henry and our deputy minister steve brown is we haven't got it right every time you know you never do this is new and it's unprecedented in our lifetimes but where we've needed to change we've changed and where we've needed to learn we've learned and when for example, the situation in Quebec people returning from spring break was reported to us. We moved and we moved quickly to, to intervene to stop essentially stop people from going away for spring break, which is one of the one of the many examples of of what's happened. So we've got to continue to be able to do that. So I think our preparations are good. But this continues to be and we've seen this in the United States in recent weeks, but we've seen it in other jurisdictions as well, where this is uh, just wave upon wave. Like there's, this, They're still in the first wave in the United States, but we're really seeing, if you will, a, a, a renewed peak, uh, It seemed to peak in in april may and now it's peaking again so uh you know sometimes we look at these things and saying well the second wave and it'll come in the fall but the american example the washington state example is basically one wave after another Mm -hmm. right and so um we have to be vigilant and we have to learn from that and we have to always always be modest about our ability to address this always understand we're in a pandemic and always understand that we need people to really um, follow the message of physical distancing and stay home when they're sick. Uh, if that doesn't happen, all the things you can do in public health uh, will matter less, let's put it that way.
1: Um, I did want to ask you too while well, I have you just about visits to those in long term and assisted care uh, last week Bonnie Henry announced that that was going to start to be allowed um, have you heard of any issues or concerns or hiccups so far I know we're pretty early in, in the game when it comes to be starting to allow those visits again but um, you know, have you heard any issues so far
0: Well, I think for a lot of families. I mean, what we're doing is limiting it to one uh, designated visitor per person, and obviously people um, would like that to be more. Um, Just to put that in context, Jeff, you think about it, there are 30,000 people in long-term care in BC, roughly. That's 30,000 more people in long-term care homes, right? And we're in a a time when we have a pandemic, after all. And so we have to be very, very, very uh, prudent about that. In order to ensure that we allow visits but also that the virus stay under control so all of the care homes in BC and they're getting support from us are um, are moving to develop their plans to do that and uh, we're trying to support that as much as possible. I think some are ready and others are going to be ready early next week. So I think um, on the family side, people are just anxious to see it happen. And on our side, we want to do what we've been doing, which is just be methodical and to get it done right so that uh, family members and others uh, and residents of long-term care aren't at risk.
1: And last question here and then I'll let you go because I'm sure we're running up on the clock here, Adrian. But uh, just I was at a few places here in town in Kamloops recently uh, just going out for a drink or whatever and I'm not seeing servers or bartenders wearing PPE like they were even just a a week ago or 10 days ago. Is there any concern about, uh, you know, maybe the the rules relaxing a little bit? I'm sure it's a lot different in Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal, but here in Interior it feels like there's less people wearing, uh, you know, masks while they're serving. Is there any concern from provincial? health officials when it comes to this now
0: well there's there's specific orders for for restaurants and um and it's important orders around physical distancing about barriers about the number of people in restaurants which reduces the risk about uh, having names of people who come in all of those orders need to be in place i think it's understandable over time that people are a bit tired of the restrictions, right? And Mm -hmm. we all have that possibility of becoming lazy and I just say that with totally without judgment. You know, I mean, it's true for all of us. All of us are, you know, a bit tired. We did our first briefing. I don't know, when we had our first conversation with the chef in January. So it's been, it's, it's, it's six months now um, that we've been dealing with COVID-19. And so I understand people are tired, but we just have to, we've got to try and institute an idea that this is a new normal. And I think for the most part, especially in the restaurant, the bar industry, people are doing that because they understand what's at stake. And again, a lot of this is an issue of confidence, um, I would argue, uh, Jeff, that it's not just a question of following the rules. If for the restaurant and the bar service sector, for example, uh, I think a lot of people are still not going back, right? And so following the rules is important for them as it builds confidence. Um, that that's a safe thing to do as well as an enjoyable thing to do. So um, that's what we need to see happen. And uh, overall, I'm pretty pleased about it. But, you know, obviously, um, obviously, uh, there's always work to be done.
1: Well, Minister, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really do appreciate it.
0: Hey, I so appreciate it, Jeff, and take care. I'll talk to you next week.
1: All right, there you go. There's BC's Minister of Health, Adrian Dix. And, of course, as we talked about there, looking ahead to flu season and uh, when that respiratory season, as they like to call it, comes back around, uh, the ability to increase testing capacity is pretty critical. He's talking there about increasing the capacity to 20,000 tests per day here in BC. We're currently sitting at just 7,700. So uh, obviously I need to more than double the ability to uh, do COVID-19 testing here in the province of British Columbia. As he mentioned as well, of course, the idea isn't necessarily to do 20,000 k- tests per day, but the ability to do that uh, is something that is important. 2,200 tests done yesterday with 18 coming back negative or positive, excuse me. So uh, I mean, the, the results are there. So far, so good as we go through the summer. But once we hit flu season, of course, with those intermingling symptoms, it could cause some problems or concerns for those who maybe are just worrisome that they might have COVID-19. And and the situation across the, the, the country is continuing to improve. I mean, Ontario, 170 new cases here today. Quebec announced 137 new cases here today. Um, you know, that's actually the most they've seen since June 25th in Quebec. So they're clearly starting to, uh, I mean, at least it feels like they're getting a handle on things and right now in BC of course as we mentioned just as of yesterday now up over 3,000 total cases since the pandemic began. not a bad number when comparing to what's going on in other places. Look at Florida. They had uh, I think it was 9,000 new cases here uh, just in one day alone. So we're doing pretty good relative to other places here in British Columbia. And we'll continue to uh, get updates here from Minister Dix as I chat with him on a fairly regular basis at this stage of the game. And uh, my hat's off and and shout out to Adrian for continuing to come on. Thank you so much for the time. All right. Do have to take one more break here. But when I come back, well, there'll be more Jeff Andreas show to talk about. I know the uh, 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 police chiefs of Canada are looking to decriminalize illicit drug possession. We'll talk more about that after this.
0: Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News.
1: This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on this Thursday. Now, the head of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police is calling for the decriminalization of simple possession of illicit drugs. Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer, also the president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, says that arresting individuals for simple possession of illicit drugs has proven to be ineffective and does not save lives. Well, B.C. Premier John Horgan was asked today about whether he supports the call, and here is his response.
3: I do support it. Uh, I... I fir- firmly believe we have been here in British Columbia in a public health emergency uh, for over five years when it comes to opioid overdoses. Uh, we have put in place uh, new resources, we have a standalone Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, we've been making investments in communities, we've been doing our level best to reduce dependency, to create opportunities for those who have moments of clarity within their addiction to be to be helped so when they reach out we want to be there for them but this fundamental question Question that uh, Adam Palmer, the v- Vancouver Police Department Chief and the head of the National Chiefs uh, outlined today is where I believe we need to go. If not now, when? Yeah, so, I mean, clearly, Horgan's supporting the call. And, of course, this is about more
1: than, than, you know, just helping those who are drug users. It also does a lot for the police forces as well.
3: We're in the midst of a global pandemic when it comes to COVID-19. In British Columbia, that is further complicated by an overdose crisis, which saw last month the highest monthly number of deaths that we've seen in a good long time. Anything that we can do to reduce uh, the, the deaths and to reduce the dependence and to, and to quite frankly free up law enforcement to do other things, I support. So the premier supports
1: the call, and Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer says the chiefs recommend the current enforcement-based approach for possession be replaced with a health care approach that diverts people from the criminal justice system. And this is also something we've heard our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, call for as well. I mean, locking people up for simple possession will not be effective in trying to curb drug use in B.C. It won't help people deal with their addiction issues, and it also paints those who use substances with a brush that likely negatively impacts their desire to get help as well. Uh, I spoke earlier this week with Addiction Matters Kamloops about changing the way we refer to people who use substances and have substance use problems and how using terms like crackhead and methhead, well, you know, they they really dehumanizes them and locking people up and treating them like animals also reinforces that stigma. So I think this is an important step and we shall see if the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police gets its wish that a national task force be created to look into drug policy reform. I personally think... It would be a good step. All right. Well, on that note, it's about time for me to wrap things up. So I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'm off here tomorrow. John Keene's going to be filling in and I'll be back here on Monday at noon.